Good afternoon to those of you on the East Coast and good morning to those of you on the West Coast. Today is June 30th, 2020. My name is Felix Shipkovich and I'm honored to co-host this webinar with my co-host Bianca Patku. Today we have a very interesting subject matter, a uh, subject matter that has gotten a lot of attention in recent years with a number of regulatory actions and continue to be a subject matter that's evolving in the courts throughout the country. And that is the legal and regulatory uses of attorneys in the debt relief industry. For those of you who are in the debt relief space, the slang that you're probably familiar with is the attorney model. The reason I did not title this presentation as a discussion of the attorney model is because it's just an industry term. In fact, it took me quite some time to really understand if in fact there really is an attorney model. So what we'll do today is we'll discuss this subject matter in detail and really figure out whether in fact there is such a thing as the attorney model. So here's a little agenda for us today. Here's what we're going to cover. Debt settlement and attorney prohibition on fee sharing. Attorney ethical and professional responsibility consideration when one, performing debt settlement services, and two, entering into relationships with debt settlement companies. Three, legal and regulatory issues surrounding the use of, as you see, I use the quotation marks, the attorney model in the debt settlement space. And finally, my colleague Bianca Petko will discuss a number of FTC and CAPB enforcement actions for the use of what is considered to be the attorney model. Now, to make this simple for you, uh, whether you're watching it live uh, through a webinar or whether you're watching it through one of our podcast channels, we decided to bifurcate the discussions um, into attorney and debt settlement buckets, two categories. We have a pretty decent amount of listeners live right now who are attorneys and quite interested to see what the legal and regulatory issues arise in providing service to clients who need debt settlement, debt relief work. And we also have a number of debt settlement companies as well and work with attorneys uh, in servicing their clients. So it would be pertinent to bifurcate and at the same time, maybe even commingle the discussion of these two categories. Now, before we dive right into it, what you have is a repetitive slide from our previous webinars. We had recently, in the past month, we had a two-part series on TSR, uh, particularly how TSR applies to debt relief companies, and also the second part was for credit repair companies. And the reason we have it up there on the screen for you at the very beginning of this program is because it's pertinent, very important, to keep in mind TSR. TSR applies not just only to debt settlement companies or credit repair companies, but it also applies to attorneys. That's correct. TSR applies to attorneys. Attorneys cannot charge upfront fees without performing the service. The same restriction was put in place in 2010, and we're approaching a 10-year anniversary. Let's move on. Let's define what is considered to be the attorney model. Now, this interpretation is our interpretation based on the research, based on representing a number of companies and attorneys in this space, both on the regulatory side and through litigation. 
And so what we decided to do is we decided to subdivide them, as you could see, into two categories. For those of you who attended our firm's in-person regulatory workshop in Irvine last November, we actually had four categories. And we derived those categories from the case law that currently exists, and Bianca will talk about that shortly. However, for the purposes of this webinar, we decided to probably the best way to dumb it down, to simplify it even further. There are two types of relationships that exist in the so-called attorney model, right? The first was you have attorneys, you have direct relationship with clients. That's right. Attorneys can have direct relationship with clients. If they provide debt relief services and they onboard the clients and they service those clients, those are direct relationships. There's no question, this cannot be questioned, this cannot be, you know, it's a direct relationship. There's nothing else more or less to it, right? If you have hired attorneys before, you work directly with them. You have indirect relationship with clients and you see in parentheses, I have the word legal with a question mark on it. What does it mean, an indirect relationship? That means an attorney on boards, a debt relief client, assigns them as a client of the firm, but doesn't really deal primarily and substantially with that client, does not deal with that client. So attorney A is retained by client A. Client A speaks to the attorney, client A signs the engagement letter, possibly even sends in a small retainer, but from the point the attorney is involved, the attorney can then outsource this to one of two um, channels. First channel would be a paraprofessional within the firm or outsource, outsource it to a legal support company or a third party vendor or debt settlement company to service that client. And we will talk about the ethical and professional responsibility issues surrounding such outsource um, scenario uh, throughout this webinar. And certainly some of the case law that Bianca will talk about will touch upon that. The third prong is there is no relationship with clients. What does that mean? How do you have indirect and then no relationship? And that's pretty clear, meaning that the attorney doesn't speak to a client. Somebody else who's not part of the law firm signs up a client under the premise that they will be serviced by attorney A. Client A doesn't speak to attorney A. Client A doesn't even talk to a paraprofessional of attorney A. They're simply onboarded by a debt settlement company or somebody performing, proposing to perform that service. And then are serviced entirely by the debt settlement company. And the attorney's name is nothing but just really, you know, a way to entice someone to sign up with you. But really the attorney A is not performing any services we're not doing anything whatsoever, right? So there's no relationship, right? Now let's go into the second bucket, right? The second bucket concerns debt settlement companies who can refer clients to attorneys. Perfectly fine, right? Debt settlement company A cannot perform services or feels that the, the customer or customers that they service are being sued and they're not able to resolve those disputes and they refer them to attorneys. As long as they refer them to attorneys and do not share fees, and we'll talk about the professional responsibility rules, 
that's perfectly fine. They can potentially, and again, and I, I want to put an asterisk, even receive a flat fee for referring a client to an attorney. You know, over the years, with obviously the rise of web services in the past 25 years, there are quite a substantial number of marketing companies that sell leads to attorneys, so there's nothing wrong for that settlement company to sell on a flat fee basis a lead that they can't service, right? The second is indirect relationship with clients, and that really mirrors what we have above in the attorneys, right? Same thing, right? It's, it's a bit of a question mark. Is it really legal? Meaning that the client is onboarded by a debt settlement company who may or may not service that client, and that client potentially might be served by an attorney, but that client is not a client of that attorney's office. Uh, as one of the scenarios. That, that happens extremely rare. And finally, there is no relationship with clients whatsoever. Clients are onboarded directly through law firms and debt settlement company services the entire file whatsoever. Basically, the second and third prong of both buckets mirror, mirror each other pretty well. Okay? Let's continue defining the attorney model. Okay? And again, we have two buckets or two. <laughs> we bifurcate the issue. We have attorneys in the debt settlement space the right way, right? They can represent their own clients. They can represent them in bankruptcy matters or provide debt settlement, right? There's nothing wrong. You could, you know, in fact, arguably, there are many bankruptcy lawyers who are not even utilizing debt settlement and are just potentially, arguably, you know, throwing their clients into chapter seven or 13 without really assessing all the options, but they are their own clients, right? They, in fact, you could make an argument there's a professional responsibility for attorneys to advise their clients of many different options, whether credit counseling or the bankruptcy or debt settlement. Um, but that's the right way. They're signing the engagement letter. They, are, they have a fiduciary duty. They have a professional responsibility to represent the interests of those clients, right? And there's also an option for FDCPA, right? So any type, you know, you could represent the client for the purposes of if you're being harassed by a creditor, you could represent that client to go after and seek statutory and potentially even punitive damages. That's the right way, right? There's a direct relationship between a client and an attorney. What's the wrong way? You can't split fees. You can't share fees with debt settlement companies, whether front end or back end. It doesn't matter. The substance of what attorneys cannot do is share fees. Similarly, debt settlement companies cannot offer to share fees with their revenue or profits with attorneys because even though debt settlement companies are not attorneys, they could potentially get into trouble for offering to share fees. They can compensate an attorney a reasonable fee for performing services for that debt settlement company. They could refer clients to a debt settlement to, to an attorney. They could even, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, provide that for every client that they refer, they pay a flat fee or for you know pay per lead. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, I encourage. Obviously, you you have to do a factual analysis, but generally, there's really no prohibition. And clearly, what you can do if you're an attorney, you can provide misleading. Uh, representation, meaning you can't say, I will provide you with a service, whatever that service is, it doesn't have to be that settlement, and not provide them with a service and have somebody else provide them with a service. If somebody else is providing with a service, 
that has to be properly, adequately, clearly disclosed and consented by the client. And whatever the fees the client's going to pay to the attorney or to a third party has to be formally, clearly stated in the written form, an engagement letter, right? Now, let's continue. Why the attorney model use? Again, I, 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 I'm asking you to be mindful that every time I use the word attorney model, I put it in quotations, right? It's just a slang. It's really not, it's an industry term that somehow developed. I've been an attorney since 2003 and until I came into the debt release space, I didn't really know what an attorney model meant. Is there a doctor's model? Is there an accountant's model? An attorney model? Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. So I, that's why I put in quotation marks because that's really, my opinion is really just not a term. It's a slang, uh, you know, that's used. Well, first of all, uh, attorneys can do a lot more than debt settlement companies, right? Attorneys can represent clients, right? Be that without being licensed as a debt relief company. Every single state exempts attorneys, and for those states that actually prohibit for-profit debt settlement, attorneys can still do debt settlement. And the logic behind, the logic behind providing attorneys with such necessary right to provide debt settlement services is because we do it quite often. Whether you are transactional, business, or litigate, you know, or litigator, attorney, you provide that service almost on a daily basis. You negotiate. Negotiate means potentially setting liability. Debt is liability. So attorneys do not have to be licensed as debt settlement companies, but be mindful again, just that's why part of the reason why I have TSR in the very beginning of this presentation is that attorneys are still subject to TSR, you cannot collect upfront fees. Now, the second reason is that following the advanced fee ban in 2010, the quote-unquote attorney model became more common. Now, it didn't become more common that it's become widely used. It's just it became as a way for some companies and also some attorneys to creatively figure out ways to circumvent TSR. Um, or to circumvent, circumvent the state regulatory licensing um, requirements. Now, you know, I, I'm a regulatory attorney and I, and I deal with regulators on a daily basis and the word circumventing the law, even though it has a quite negative connotation, it's not illegal, right? As long as you're not circumventing by breaking the law. Breaking is law, right? Evading the law. But the problem that it become, became more common since 2010 because it just became so much more expensive, it's such more difficult to do business and to get licensed. So therefore, this became a very interesting subject matter from a legal perspective, very interesting subject matter that touches upon a lot of interesting and intricate legal ethics issues that arise. That's right, legal ethics, right? If you're a debt settlement company, you probably don't think about legal ethics. And if you work with attorneys, you say, well, what do I care, right? That's for the attorney to think about these issues. But the reality is, and, and this again, just 
pointing to the discussion that will follow from Bianca, is that these legal ethics questions, the, the, the issues concerning the professional responsibility of attorneys will in fact affect you if you do business with attorneys. And while you do not have to be an expert on these legal issues, you do have to be mindful on some of the compensation fee sharing prohibitions that exist for attorneys. What you have here is the is rule 5.4. This literally is taken from, again, point, referring back to the Irvine regulatory workshop when we were still able to travel and, and, and meet in person. Um, hopefully we'll be able to do this again. And by the way, um, my firm has had a pretty good response to asking for another one and this particular subject matter, right? Discussions about legal and regulatory uses of attorneys in the debt relief industry was the one part of the five part program in Irvine that you couldn't even hear a needle, you could hear a needle drop because everybody was just listening and, 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 and absorbing the information. And, and it's just really, I'm happy that we're get to do this again uh, through this webinar. So, the attorney fee splitting prohibition. Look, we're not going to read the entire rule 5.4, but let's just read what's on A. A lawyer, a law firm shall not share legal fees with a non-lawyer except that, and they give you four exceptions. Uh, a copy of this program is always available on our website, uh, but if you ever want a copy, please email me. I'm happy to send you the slides. But the rule 5.4 is very clear. Unless you fall into very, very narrow four exemptions, you cannot share fees. Now, this, these are the model rules, and if you're an attorney licensed in one or more states, you have to check the rules of professional responsibility in your respective state to see whether or not, in fact, you know, your, this 5.4, rule 5.4, in fact, is identical. But I could tell you that it is quite substantially identical or similar across the board in all 50 states. That's right. It is not a rule that you have a lot of flexibility or interpretation, right? On page two here, you actually fit a five, rule 5.4. I want to just quickly read the commentary. And there's a reason why I put in the commentary. Not only read one sentence from the commentary in bullet point one. And that says, the provisions of this rule express traditional limitations on sharing fees. These limitations are to protect the lawyer's professional independence of judgment. And the words that I want to emphasize here, independence of judgment, or professional independence of judgment. So when you're discussing the quote-unquote attorney model and the use of attorneys, if you're using an attorney, is that attorney, in fact, exercising an independent, independent professional judgment through the course of representing a client? That is a very, very important and critical point, in, in my opinion, as part of this entire discussion. Now, let's move on. Types of attorney models. Now, in Irvine, I actually called them based on a different case law. But again, I, now that we have two buckets, attorneys and debt settlement companies, let's, let's narrow down even further, right? Um, one, debt settlement companies, clients, directly hire attorneys. We discussed that. I'm a client. I want to hire an attorney. I feel debt settlement company 
can continue to help me, but I also want to hire an attorney in a particular case where there's litigation was filed, right? So I want to continue to work with the company, but I also want to hire an attorney. Whether I hire this attorney through, for instance, a plan, like one of the legal um, plans that exist through multiple companies, or hire them directly, or I ask that similar company to refer me, right? That's perfectly fine as long as the hiring of that attorney is proper. There's no fee sharing. There is no issue. But I am putting into the attorney model because we are using attorneys, right? Because some things that potentially may, you know, that some company can do to either negotiate that or do the proper presentation. Sometimes you just need help and there's nothing wrong. By the way, you know, it's interesting. It, there's nothing wrong to say that you may need to hire an attorney to help your client or your client needs to hire an attorney, to be honest, just to be correct that, right? There's nothing wrong, right? At some point, if you're a debt summit company, you've probably been in situations where, look, you've got five credit cards that you're working, four of them, you, you, you're, you're working amicably, everything is working, but one creditor is just, you know, they're pretty uh, stern. They don't want to settle. And in fact, they sued, you know, I, I, why, why would you not want your client to be represented, right? It's probably in your best interest as well. Two, that settlement company refers its clients to attorneys. So how's this different from uh, the first one? In the first one, the debt settlement company refers clients and the client hires the attorneys. In the second one, the debt settlement company refers clients to attorneys, but in fact, the attorneys do not possibly hire those clients and merely just begin to kind of be somewhere in the middle. You know, at that point, the attorney cannot say, at that point, the attorney cannot say that they represent that client, um, but may assist from time to time with negotiation as long as proper disclosure of who that representation is for, who that representation is for is clear and unquestionable, right? It's not misleading. Um, now, the, and so the second prong, there's a, there's a possibility to refer that as long as there's no fee sharing. I just want to be clear. As long as there's no fee sharing and any violation of the rules, the professional, respons professional responsibility rules or ethics rules, there's really no issue as long as the representation is clear and unquestionable and cannot, you know, you, you, you disclose who exactly you represent. The third point is that some company onboards its clients with attorneys. What does that mean? So that goes back to that indirect relationships where I'm a debt settlement company. I receive a call from a consumer seeking my help, but I, I don't onboard them with my company. I'm boarded with attorney A or attorney B or attorney C. Why am I onboarding them with attorney A and B, C? I have no idea. Let's be very clear. I don't know why would I, debt settlement company, onboard a client with an attorney. If the client wants to hire an attorney, they should contact that attorney. But if a client is being referred to be onboarded to that attorney, and that attorney may or may not even speak to that client, and let's assume that they speak to that client, why, you know, what is the incentive for debt settlement company to send them to attorneys? If a debt settlement company is acting as a marketing agent, as a marketing venue, Okay, well, that makes sense. But again, prohibition of fee sharing, you can't really share those fees. On the other hand, if there's fee sharing, splitting fees, 
however you want. By the way, I want to be very, very clear for both attorneys and that some of the companies. There is no creative way on fee splitting and fee sharing. I cannot tell you over the years, I've spoken to dozens of attorneys and dozens of debt settlement companies and say, well, what if you pay this? What if you pay a tail? No, there is really no creative ways. The bars in each state are not amused by such creativity. They take this pretty seriously. I, I could tell you. There are generally two things that they take pretty seriously. One is the proper handling of clients' fines funds through escrow accounts or IOLTA accounts. In New York, they're called IOLA. In other states, they're called IOLTA accounts. That the bars take very seriously, okay? And the second issue is any fee sharing. Uh, there is no creative way, okay? There's, in fact, the more creative you're going to do, you know, you're going to try to be as part of your endeavor, the more you're violating the law. There is no way around it, right? But when the, when the debt summer company onboards clients with attorneys who are really not there to provide a service, but really just a front end to, you know, help get more clients for debt settlement company, um, well, I, I think that's problematic. I, 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 you know, I could tell you that the regulators are not amused about that um, and, and have filed enforcement actions now for years. And again, Bianca will talk about that. And uh, finally, Attorneys outsource negotiation to debt settlement companies. Also very interesting because now there are some attorneys who do work in a debt settlement space, um, but they outsource them to non-attorneys, to debt settlement companies. Uh, and the subject matter of legal outsourcing is very interesting from an ethical perspective. We could probably spend hours <laughs> talking about it, but to make it really short, it's not prohibited. It's done all the time. Uh, as long as the attorneys uh, properly follow the rules of their state's professional responsibility. Um, merely sending it off to a third party that some company or legal support company is not enough. I mean, there, there, there has to be, if you do that, there has to be proper disclosure. They, you know, there are just so many legal ethics questions involved. It, as I said, it will take hours for us to discuss. If any of you are interested, feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to uh, discuss the high level points with you. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's also, I put that into the attorney model. Now, um, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Bianca, and she will discuss the enforcement actions against debt settlement companies. Okay, so as Felix discussed earlier, we actually split the cases up into two sections as well. So first we're gonna go into the enforcement action um, against debt settlement companies. And for those of you who joined us during our webinar a few weeks ago on the TSR, a few of these cases might seem a little similar to you, but they're equally as important in this discussion of the attorney, attorney model. So it is important that we touch upon them quickly again, but I probably won't go in super depth with them like I did last time. So first we have CFPB versus Morgan Drexen, which is a very famous case that I'm sure a lot of you know about. Um, the allegations here are Morgan Drexen, which is a nationwide debt relief company, was accused of violating TSR and Dodd-Frank, um, basically for charging illegal upfront fees and for their debt relief services and misrepresenting their services to consumers. Morgan Drexen would provide consumers with two contracts, one for debt settlement services and one for bankruptcy related services, but they only use this bankruptcy contract as a cover to charge upfront fees and no bankruptcy work was ever done for these consumers who signed both contracts. 
So based on the investigation that the CFPB did, they brought suit against Morgan Drexen because they were alleging that consumers who signed up and sought these services for debt relief and not bankruptcy, they still had to pay this upfront char charge for the bankruptcy and no work was done for them within the bankruptcy. Um, so that uh, was simply a ruse designed to disguise impermissible upfront fees. So this is classified as an attorney model case because of this dual contract where consumers would pay for this bankruptcy consultation and option, but never actually received any bankruptcy work. Um, also, interestingly, in this case, after the CFPB filed this case and the case was completed, they had to file another case against two attorneys that tried to use Morgan Drexen again um, as attorneys with the same model, with charging upfront fees and using unlawful conduct in the same manner. And the case was brought for them as well. So the next case is CFPB versus Mission Debt Settlement. Here, we also discussed this one during the TSR webinar, but here their defendants are, several attorneys are included as defendants, and they were accused of soliciting financially distressed consume, uh, customers and unlawfully collecting advanced fees. So they also allegedly misled consumers, impersonated a government agency, and gave false statements regarding their fees. And the attorneys here were used within the debt settlement process as a cover and a way to collect large upfront fees without ever doing any debt settlement work or negotiating any debts as attorneys. And also, interestingly, one attorney was actually sentenced to serve time in federal prison from um, a case related to this one. The next case is FTC versus Debt Relief USA. Um, so in this case, the attorney model might be a bit more hidden, but it really focuses on the fact that officials would misrepresent to consumers that they would receive legal representation through their time um, as a consumer under Debt Relief USA. So defendants would allegedly, had allegedly made unsubstantiated claims about settlement percentages, savings, program timelines. They manipulated their own data to make it seem um, their, that their results were better than they actually were. The, they actually, the complaint alleged that the defendants charged consumers fees, including administrative fees, monthly maintenance fees, and negotiation fees, though most of the consumers did not ever reach this negotiation fee stage and they were often out of the program before they could even receive any help from the debt settlement company. So, but the main issue here to discuss what in the attorney model sense is this misrepresentation that uh, they would receive legal representation from working with this company. The next case is FTC versus United Debt Counselors. And here uh, the defendants allegedly set out sent out ads via direct mail that looked like official documents from a bank or an attorney. And they made unsubstantiated claims that consumers would have their credit card debt cut in half and they'd become debt free within 36 months. So these mailers that they would send out would give the impression that it was an official attorney document or an official document. And each of them had a similar form that would look like it was either from a bank or an attorney or an official source. And they would also have this, um, claim that consumers may lose money if they do not call the toll-free telephone number provided within 10 days, which was quite daunting for consumers who received it. Uh, defendants also here would use a face-to-face -face model, which was actually a requirement of the state. So instead of sending attorneys to uh, the consumers' meetings where they would have to sign these contracts, they would send public notaries and they would leave out misrepresentations within the contract that uh, what consumers were actually signing were signing to agree to upfront fees, even though they had not been told that that's what they were agreeing to. 
So the stipulated order here was saying that defendants were banned from making misrepresentations about debt relief and under other financial products or services and making unsubstantiated claims about any products or services. Um, and the attorney model issue here is mainly that this, they gave misrepresentations again of who they were working with for the consumers to believe that attorneys were involved when they were not. So next, these cases are actually the enforcement actions against attorneys or those acting as attorneys. These uh, might, the attorney model here might be more visible since it's actually attorneys or those acting as attorneys that are being named in the suits. Um, basically they're being named for actions that they did or did not take while working on behalf of debt settlement companies in some fashion. So the first case here is the People of Illinois versus Legal Helpers Debt Resolution. The allegations are that Legal Helpers is an Illinois law firm. They partnered with non-lawyer debt settlement companies to take advantage of this provision in the Illinois Debt Settlement Consumer Protection Act, which exempts attorneys from a bunch of regulations and prohibitions that normal debt settlement companies have to abide by. So Legal Helpers had these non-lawyer debt settlement companies appear to be the law firm's agents in order to charge these advanced fees. And the clients would sign retainers but receive no legal services. So here, the defendants used attorneys as a front to charge illegal upfront fees while providing no meaningful debt settlement services. And the settlement that was reached here was that legal helpers would provide $2.1 million in restitution for the Illinois residents who paid for these debt settlement services but failed to receive any meaningful reduction in their debt. And the company was also banned from accepting any new Illinois clients. And also in a separate disciplinary action, which is important for those attorneys that are on um, this webinar right now, two attorneys involved with legal helpers had their Illinois licenses suspended for two years. The next case is State of Colorado versus the Johnson Law Group. Here, the allegations are that the Johnson Law Group, which is a Florida-based law firm, violated the, violated the Colorado Uniform Debt Management Services Act by contracting with at least 665 Colorado residents to perform debt management services, which itself outsourced to back-end companies. So there were also additional violations of the UDMSA here, which were including the failure to make necessary disclosures pertaining to fees. And the resolution here is an, another attorney, Clint Johnson, who's the defendant here, was soon there disbarred in a Florida hearing for the misappropriation of client funds, where he actually admitted that he was a subject of several state investigations for failing to obtain authorization to perform debt management services. Um, so the main takeaway here is that the Attorney General of Colorado sued this Johnson Law Group for engaging in debt management in Colorado without a license and alleged that the firm outsourced the debt management work to non-attorneys while promising that the work would be handled by attorneys. So there's a lot of misrepresentation going on there. The next case is the state of North Carolina versus Consumer Law Group. So the allegations here are that the North Carolina AG alleged are that the Consumer Law Group and co-defendants received more than $1.6 million from 650 North Carolina consumers, um, of which only 202,000 was paid out to creditors and of which defendants retained at least 800,000 as illegal advance fees. So the, here the defendants also allegedly received approximately $34 million in fees from consumers nationwide. So this was not just a North Carolina issue, but it is the North Carolina AG that brought this case. And here the defendants allegedly used deceptive soliciting tactics, referring to a non-existent government program using government seals and misrepresenting that its services were performed by attorneys, which North Carolina is quite a strict uh, state when it comes to debt settlement companies. So 
that makes sense why they would bring this type of case. And the consent judgment here, um, under the consent judgment, the consumer law group paid, uh, agreed to pay $600,000 in refunds to North Carolina consumers, and they agreed not to collect approximately $600,000 worth of charges that were outstanding. Uh, the defendants also made additional payments of $50,000 to cover the state's costs. And the judgment here barred the defendants from marketing, soliciting, or offering any debt settlement services in North Carolina. And the judgment is also prohibited from claiming that its services are government sponsored, performed by attorneys, or that they provide any legal representation, any legal representation for the consumers here. So it's another law group that um, was charged. The next case is actually quite recent. Um, it's Ohio State Bar Association versus Watkins Global. So this case is a bit different from the other ones. It is a bar association that's bringing it, the case. Um, and the allegations here are alleging that the individual engaged in unauthorized practice of the law in his individual capacity as an owner of a limited liability company and while doing business under a corporate name would represent small businesses in debt settlement negotiations with creditors. Here, the defendant actually explained that the business model is actually just engaging in the act of business mediation, not legal representation. And he actually considered himself more of a middleman between the two entities, the consumer and the creditor, and that he did not provide any legal advice to the consumer, but merely relayed the information from creditor to consumer. So originally the board had granted summary judgment in favor of the Bar Association, but the defendant appealed here. So this is the um, decision from the appeal. So after reviewing the appeal, the state bar actually found that the individual here did not engage in an unauthorized practice of law as a result of his general, it's a very general debt negotiation with creditors. So as he was saying, he was just engaging in the act of business mediation, he wasn't negotiating. But they did find one instance where he did engage in the unauthorized practice of law by making a legal recommendation to a creditor's counsel after being hired to represent a client in a mortgage foreclosure matter with the bank. So it wasn't a debt settlement action, it was a foreclosure action, but that was the only instance that the Bar Association found where an unauthorized practice of law had actually occurred. And it was because he was making legal recommendations, which he had not been doing um, for the debt settlement clients. So he, the Bar Association and the court here enjoined respondents Watkins and Watkins Global, which is the defendant, from engaging in unauthorized practice of law in the future and imposed a civil penalty of $1,000 against him. The next case is Disciplinary Council versus Smith. It's also a bit more recent. And this case actually might, doesn't deal with debt settlement out front per se, but it does deal with someone who is not licensed to practice law, negotiating on a legal matter on behalf of a consumer. And it is especially important because the work here is actually being done by a paralegal under an attorney. So the allegations are, that the complaint alleged that Smith, who was not licensed to practice in Ohio, agreed to assist Deborah Krantz with a foreclosure matter that was pending in the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas and sought to modify the terms of the subject loan during the pendency of the lender's foreclosure proceeding. So the complaint further alleged that although Smith represented that she undertook those actions as a paralegal under the supervision of the attorney, the attorney was actually unaware of this and did not participate in Smith's representation of Krantz. So it's important to note here that even if the paralegal is working for an attorney, there are some things which Felix discussed in the model rules that are not in that model rule per se, but it's in a different model rule within the same professional responsibility that 
someone who is working under you as an attorney who is not licensed as an attorney can only do so much. So here the paralegal was acting as a lawyer and that resulted in the unauthorized practice of law. So the panel here recommended that Smith be enjoined from engaging in additional acts of unauthorized practice of law and be ordered to pay a civil penalty of $5,000 for her violation. Um, so yeah, after reviewing the record, the board agreed that Smith engaged in the unauthorized practice of law in Ohio and that an injunction civil penalty were warranted. So even as a paralegal, you cannot be doing negotiations or acting as an attorney when you are not one. And next, we just have two quick cases. They're not, I'm not gonna go in depth in them, but they are quite important. So McIntosh versus Mills, it's from 2004. Here, the main takeaway is that attorney ethics panels, both in and out of state, have been moved to embrace rules against fee sharing with non-attorneys out of concern for interference with the attorney's professional judgment, their creation of conflicts of interest, and the unwholesome specter of attorneys soliciting professional liaisons with laypersons. So this relates quite a bit to the Smith um, case above. And Martello v. Santana, the, professional, the rules of professional conduct were not created to protect non-lawyers who enter into contracts with attorneys but were instead designed to ensure both the judicial process is ethical and to protect potential clients. So it's, these are both two very interesting cases that um, are to keep in mind if you have people working with you that are paralegals or something like that, where they, there might be some sort of unauthorized practice of law, just to keep in mind. But yeah. Thank you, Bianca. All right. So I just want to go really quickly back to these last two cases, the Watkins Global Network and then uh, the Smith case. And, and just to give you a, a couple additional thoughts, um, I think that the one takeaway, right? That let's take away from Watkins. As an attorney said, we, we say, what's the dicta of the case, right? What's the additional issue that we need to be thinking about is the fact that is, is your uh, general negotiation as an attorney on behalf of clients with creditors considered to be practice of law? The answer is no. Negotiation is not practice of law. If that negotiation then subsequently results in me, the attorney, providing legal recommendation to a client, then the question comes down to whether, A, I have the legal expertise on that subject matter. So, for instance, if you're dealing with secure debt, and the second issue is whether that legal recommendation um, is something that would require me to have a license. If it's merely a transactional recommendation, legal recommendation, there's an argument to make, right, from a legal ethics perspective that, uh, you know, I'm not helping anybody prepare pleadings, complaints, you know, prepare an answer. That's just a mere, you know, recommendation. Um, you know, but if if I'm as an attorney, not licensed in the jurisdiction where a client is located is assisting them in preparing pleadings or helping them deal with a legal, legal and judicial matter, uh, then I may be involved in an authorized practice of law, right? So we need to be careful. You know, attorneys can provide counsel, generally can provide counsel on interpretation of state law as long as it's in you know, transactional interpretation. But I cannot provide counsel as an attorney to someone in states where I'm not admitted of, you know, anything regarding judicial matters. I would have to be admitted temporarily 
on the Prohakvice Pro model or use local council for that. So that's an important issue to take on Watkins Global, just to sort of round up very important recent issues. Smith case, again, just to highlight and emphasize what Bianca said, this case doesn't involve that settlement. What's important here is the fact that you had an attorney, if you look at the second bullet point, who was not aware of what exactly the person Smith was doing, right? So paralegals, paraprofessionals, law students can work under attorney supervision. However, they have to be directly supervised and monitored and they can provide the assistance on behalf of an attorney, but they cannot argue legal points. They could pass on settlement amounts. They could pass on the message, you know, uh, obviously depending on what that message is and it's not deemed to be legal advice. But if the attorney is not involved, unaware in uh, what the paralegal or paraprofessional or even take it further, a third party, like as I discussed as part of the discussion at the beginning of this webinar, that's problematic. So just to, for you to keep in mind. And finally, right, we're right, let, let's, well, let's kind of get it down. Is the use of attorneys in a debt relief space legal? Or is the attorney model legal? The $64,000 question. And the answer to that is it depends on the facts. It depends on your setup. It depends if you're following the law, starting with federal law, TSR, state law, on licensing issues. Who's working for you? You know, are you supervising them? Are you an attorney? If you're not an attorney, how are you referring? Are you compensating? Are you sharing fees with attorneys? There are just a lot of issues. They're very, very fact specific, right? And you're probably saying to yourself, wait a second, oh great, you know, I'm at the end of this webinar and the last thing the attorney says is there is no answer. And the reality is in this particular situation, you have to have fact specific, uh, facts specifically presented to you to determine whether something or not is legal. As you could see from a number of cases that were filed by the states, like the state of Colorado, for instance, in one of the cases that Bianca discussed, or the FTC, or the CFPB, or the disciplinary boards. You have to be very fact-specific, right? Very, very fact-specific. So the short answer is, is it legal? It depends on the facts and how exactly you're doing business. There are some things that you certainly can do, and I discussed that. You can't provide misleading advice. You can't uh, pretend that you, you know, you're a debt settlement company, but you're onboarding clients with attorneys and, and then just basically uh, attorneys have nothing to do with these clients. It's just nothing but, uh, uh, you know, uh, smoking mirrors. Uh, no, you can't do that. that. That's pretty clear, right? It's either you're providing a service or the attorney providing a service. Can you provide a service together with an attorney if you're a debt settlement company? Sure. You can, as long as the client it hires an attorney directly, right? Because there has to be a privative contract. There has to be a representation. Anyway, we've discussed it all in the beginning of this webinar. If anybody who has any questions, happy to discuss them with you offline. And finally, at your own risk, at your own peril, let's be very candid. You have to be mindful of federal and state regulators. You have to be mindful of private causes of actions and possibly class actions. You, if you're an attorney, you have to be thinking about your license and potentially being disbarred. And finally, you know, even if you're not disbarred, disciplinary actions are a matter of public knowledge. 
Is that really worth it for you? Okay. So again, uh, the same slide that you see all webinars. Here's a list of our debt relief industry services. We work with attorneys, debt relief companies, escrow companies, fintech companies. We provide counsel, uh, regulatory counsel, transactional assistance, and also litigation um, support and representation. Um, so hope uh, you can uh, contact us if you need our assistance. Uh, we have uh, a website that um, uh, keeps track of all the recent legal and regulatory developments. Uh, it actually has gotten significant amount of traction since we started doing webinars uh, earlier this year. Uh, it, it actually quite amazing how much interest there is in legal and regulatory issues. And plus, we also from time to time post, um, you know, links to third-party sources concerning subject matters like student uh, debt relief. We also have uh, you know credit card debt amounts, uh, everything involving the current pandemic, uh, you know, and, and debt, uh, consumer debt also would try to update that almost on a daily basis. I suggest to subscribe. Hey, it's free. Okay. It doesn't cost you any money. You get informed. Finally, always a big shout out to Jay Mangiello from Limit Break Media who helps us put together these programs. Thank you, Jay. And here is our contact information. We're based in New York City. Uh, we also have a small office in London. Uh, but uh, I welcome you to reach out to us, uh, drop us an email, drop us a note. Uh, thank you for listening to our, this webinar, and we hope to see you at future events. Thank you.